And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, the popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone, there are other conditions to be met. A what? Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the hosts attend. And welcome back to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. My name is Matt Rosenblum, and I am here with my co-host, Onyx Siadian. We are here to sound the clarion call for the modern church to submit to the authority of Scripture and go back to its roots in the Reformation. This podcast exists to discuss modern and doctrinal issues through the lens of the Reformation. Because of the extended content of this podcast, we have split this podcast into two parts, part one and part two. Please enjoy part one on justification. Well, welcome back and uh, welcome back to episode four. And tonight we are going to talk about the subject of justification, justification by faith alone. And we have a special guest with us. Onik, why don't you introduce our special guest? Our special guest today is Dr. Lee Irons. Welcome, Lee. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah. It's been a long time. Lee and I have known each other for quite a long while. Yeah, we go back a few years. (laughs) It's great, man. Anyway, Lee, why don't you tell us about yourself? Yeah, so um, I am a Reformed theologian, biblical scholar, I uh, studied at Westminster Theological Seminary in Escondido, Uh, did my MDiv there back in the early 90s, studied under Meredith Klein and others. Uh, I have a PhD in New Testament from Fuller Theological Seminary, studying under Donald Hagner and Seyun Kim, and uh, I have a website, upperregister.com, where I have a lot of papers and theological scholarship, uh, and... uh, I try to defend the gospel, and justification by faith alone is one of my favorite topics. And uh, I love Christ, and I love the gospel, and the law-gospel distinction, and I want the church to understand that. And it's so important for our assurance, too, Amen. in the Christian life, so that we can grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, your PhD dissertation is related to the subject we're talking about. That's right, yeah. It was on the phrase, the righteousness of God, which Paul uses several times in his letter to the Romans and also in 2 Corinthians and Philippians. And uh, it was basically a critique of N.T. Wright's interpretation. N.T. Wright interprets that phrase as God's covenant faithfulness. So I did a word study to say, is that what righteousness means? Does it mean covenant faithfulness? So I looked at the usage of that term in the Old Testament and in other uh, Jewish uh, writings, the Pseudepigrapha and Apocrypha and so on, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I argued that righteousness does not mean covenant faithfulness. Mm-hmm. And so that phrase, the righteousness of God, should be better, is better understood as the righteousness that comes from God as a gift. 
it's referring to the imputed righteousness of Christ. Great. Where can someone get a copy of that book if they want it? Uh, you can get it online, um, Amazon. Uh, you can go to bookfinder.com and find cheaper prices there. It usually runs in the around $90. It's a little expensive, but hopefully it's going to come out in an American edition someday. Okay. I'm working, talking to a publisher now about that. Great. And uh, it's published by a German <laughs> publisher, so it's very expensive. They only published, only printed like 300 copies, and mm -hmm. the idea was for it to be distributed to theological libraries. They didn't really have in mind the idea of sure. the layperson buying a copy. So it's very expensive. It's highly marked up. But if we do this American version at some point, reprint it and, and publish it in the U.S., it'll be a lot cheaper. So keep Great. your eye out for that in the next year or so. Excellent. Okay, well, let's uh, jump right in. We're going to talk about the subject of justification, of course. And the question is, what is justification? How do we define it? Okay. I think the best way to define it is to look at the Reformed Confessions. Uh, the Westminster Confession, chapter 11, paragraph 1, defines it this way. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins, and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. I think you could just stop right there and say that's the key phrase, is that, right, that justification is the accounting and accepting of our persons as righteous in the sight of God. But the confession goes on to say, not for anything wrought in them, meaning the Holy Spirit working in them, or done by them, meaning their good works, but for Christ's sake alone, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them. So imputation is a key concept here the imputation of the obedience and satisfaction of Christ. That covers both the active and the passive obedience of Christ. The active obedience being his obedience, the satisfaction of Christ being the, uh, the death of Christ, the atoning death of Christ. So, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they, meaning the believer, receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It is the gift of God. That's also so important, is that it's the imputation of righteousness, but it's received by faith. And faith is the only instrument by which we receive and rest upon the righteousness of Christ. There are other evangelical graces, there's repentance, mm -hmm. there's sanctifications, all these things that you could talk about, but they are not the means by which we receive the righteousness of Christ. So faith is the instrumental cause. That's right. So that's a very compact definition. The Westminster Confession uh, lays it all out there with all the not by, but by. So making very clear distinctions between the Reformed understanding of justification versus the Roman Catholic and other views. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism has also a good definition, but it's more pastoral and not as technical and not as, you know, precisely stating everything. Heidelberg Catechism, question number 60, says, how are you righteous before God? Answer only by true faith in Jesus Christ. So notice how right away it's very helpful that they, they talk about justification as being righteous. Mm -hmm. That's really important. And in English, we have this problem where we have uh, different... Uh, English is a mongrel language that has an Anglo-Saxon base, 
and then it has the old Norman or French influence, which brings in the Latin ideas. Right. And so sometimes we use the words that come from the French or Latin source, and sometimes we use them the, the, the ones that come from the Anglo-Saxon. Righteousness is an Anglo-Saxon word. Justification is a Latin-based word. And so they sound like there's something, they sound like two different concepts. Righteousness and justification sound like they're unrelated in English. But in Greek, there's no distinction. In mm -hmm. Greek, the verb to justify is dikaiao, and the noun righteousness is dikaiosune. And to be righteous is to be dikaios. So that dikaia root is used all throughout. So I think it's very helpful the way the catechism uses this uh term here how are you righteous before god that's just another way of saying how are you justified mm -hmm. how are you righteous before god answer only by true faith in jesus christ even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all god's commandments of never having kept any of them and of still being inclined toward all evil nevertheless without any merit of my own out of sheer grace god grants and credits to me Grants and credits is their language for imputation. God imputes, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. So you see it has all the same elements as the Westminster definition. It has imputation. It has, by faith alone, the only instrument by which we receive that righteousness. It focuses on the merit of Christ as the foundation of our righteousness before God, but it's presented in a more pastoral way. And uh, I think it's very helpful to have those two definitions to complement one another as we uh, kind of set the table for our discussion here. And as you said, it's very pastoral. It's very reassuring. Yeah. yeah. I think it's amazing how they even say right there in the in the heart of it they say even though you know even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all com god's commandments in the past but also still being inclined mm -hmm. toward all evil recognizing that even as a christian even as somebody who's born again and regenerated i still have the old man within me that is inclined towards sin in spite of that I am still granted this righteousness as a gift, the righteousness of Christ, so that I am now regarded and treated in the eyes of God as if I had perfectly kept God's law. Isn't that incredible? Amen. That's just, it is. That's just so amazing and so encouraging and so helpful. Uh, I think all of us struggle with that. We all struggle with sin. We struggle with temptation. We struggle with seeing that evil inclination inside of us, you know? Yeah. Romans 7. Yeah, Romans 7. It's there. We have that. And it surprises ourselves sometimes when we see it and it comes up and it just spouts out in all these different ways in our lives. And yet in spite of that, I can have this righteous assurance, this righteousness that gives me assurance before the Lord that I am accepted. You Not know, because of my own sanctification or lack thereof, but because of Christ and his righteousness. Amen. What I was going to say is, you know, a lot of people think that Romans 7 is talking about some kind of a backslidden state, you know, where you're caught in some kind of a sin. But I like to say that every day is a Romans 7 day. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Every that's, minute. That, right. That struggle is always there yeah. as a Christian. Yeah. I grew up in a church that held to higher life theology, mm-hmm. the Keswick theology. Right. And they talked about how you've got to get out of Romans 7 and into Romans 8. Mm. So there's a lot of you Christians out there, carnal Christians are struggling and you're stuck in Romans 7, but you need to have this crisis experience, a second work of grace, a second blessing that will lead you out of Romans 7 into Romans 8 and you no longer will struggle with sin. Good luck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I never had that experience. And those that did claim to have had it were, uh, they were Pharisees. Mm-hmm. They they uh, overlooked their sins and they downplayed them and they they thought that they were victor- living the victorious Christian life, but they really weren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we, before we get uh, further into that part of our discussion, can you, we go back to justification and the principle of, uh, you, you talked about imputation. Can we talk more about that? And, and what is imputation? What is actually taking place there? Is it just Christ's righteousness to us? Or is there more than that? Or Yeah, so this is the, the heart of the debate between the Protestant Reformation and the Roman Catholic Church. So the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent, define justification as an actual transformation into being a righteous person. They, in fact, in the Council of Trent, they actually define it as being the renewal and sanctification of the whole man. So they they define justification as sanctification. So is that where the infusion comes from? Yeah. Where it becomes your your personal holiness is growing? Infusion is God infusing new habits into your soul so that you have you are a righteous person, habits of righteousness, habits of goodness and moral, moral living. So it's almost treating grace as a substance of some kind that it's injected into you and then you move on in your life. Right. Right. Inoculation. Yeah. So the Roman Catholic church teaches that justification is a making righteous. And again, this is also somewhat related to what I was saying before about Latin. The word justification is a Latin word. And it comes from, it has two parts to it. The useless part is just or righteous. And then the, the fication ending is from the verb facio, which means to make. So justification in Latin literally means to make righteous. And so you can understand why the Roman Catholic Church, they used the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible as their Bible. They didn't uh, accept the, the underlying Greek. And so they define justification as being made ontologically righteous, like you were saying, an infusion of some sort of substance into your soul, the substance of God's grace that actually makes you a righteous person. And of course, that means that you can lose it too, right? Which they believe. If you commit yeah. a mortal sin, it's like the analogy would be like you have a bathtub, right? You fill up the, the water and uh, if you uh, have a leak in the bathtub, that's a venial sin. So some of the water comes flows out, but it's still full of water. But if you pull the plug completely, all the water is drained out. That's a mortal sin. And that means all your grace is lost. And now what you have to do is you have to go to the church and go through the process of seeking the sacrament of penance by which you can then restore grace to yourself and then pursue righteousness again. Right, because they have a sacrament of view of salvation. Right. So this was the Roman Catholic view that Luther, Calvin, and the Reformers were reacting against. And they said, this is not correct on a number of levels. First of all, it's not correct because it destroys your assurance. If, if justification, if you're standing before God, 
Your legal standing and your acceptance before God depends upon your sanctification, and you can never have any assurance because if you commit a mortal sin, obviously all the grace is gone. Uh, if you commit a venial sin, it's leaking out, right? And so you're not really sure if you have that righteousness. So you can never have any assurance. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church taught that explicitly, that it's wrong to have assurance. Only the holiest of saints could possibly have assurance, and only then by some kind of direct revelation from God. It's better not to have assurance, because that will make you more motivated to live the Christian life. Which is kind of indicative of a lot of churches today. Right, exactly. Evangelical. Using that as a motivator to get yeah. people to, to be more obedient to God. And uh, unfortunately, it doesn't have that effect. It has the opposite effect. The law will only drive you to further sin. So that's the first thing, is that it, it undermines assurance to define justification as being made righteous. But the second problem with it is more fundamental, which is that it's just not what the Greek word means. If you're using the Vulgate, okay, but the Bible wasn't written in Latin. God's word was written in Hebrew and Greek, and there's also a Greek translation of the Hebrew called the Septuagint. And the word that is translated justify is dikaiao in Greek. And Paul uses this word dikaiao in a clearly forensic judicial way. He doesn't use it to, to mean to make righteous. He uses it to mean to declare or deem or judge someone to be righteous. And he gets that usage from the Septuagint. The Septuagint, which was an ancient translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek several hundred years before Christ. For example, in Exodus 23, verse 7, it says, You shall not, I'm quoting from the Septuagint here, You shall not acquit the impious person for the sake of bribes. So this is dealing with, you know, court cases in, in the nation of Israel. And uh, if there's a situation where a judge is being asked to, you know, determine somebody to be wicked or not. Uh, the Mosaic law says that the judge shall not acquit, shall not dikaiao, shall not justify the impious person, the person who's clearly a wicked person, who's clearly the criminal, for the sake of bribes. So there's a forensic aspect. It's obviously forensic, right? Because if the person is impious, they really are wicked, and you're just simply declaring them to be okay and just because you got a bribe then that's a declarative usage of the word dikaiao. It's saying to you're declaring that impious person to be innocent and acquitted, and now they're free to go, and they're not liable to punishment. Uh, and there are several other occurrences of this. So another example is in 1 Kings 8. This is in Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple, where uh, he's saying, you know, if there's a, a similar situation as Exodus, where you have some sort of a conflict within the nation, between two people, one person harms his neighbor, then Solomon is asking God that justice would be done when you have this kind of a conflict in the among the citizenship of Israel, that justice would be done at the temple that's being dedicated here. And he, Solomon asks God to declare righteous a righteous person to give him according to his righteousness and to condemn the wicked person according to his wickedness. But the verb dikaiao is used there, to declare righteous, the righteous person. Obviously, the righteous person is already righteous. They don't need to be made righteous. Mm -hmm. So God would then be declaring them to be righteous. He would be dikaiaoing them. He would be judging them to be in the right and to be righteous. So that's the basis of Paul's usage. Paul is uh, highly influenced by the Septuagint and almost 
the major vast majority of his quotations of the Old Testament are from the Septuagint. And his, his language, his, the way he uses words is informed by the Septuagint. And it's very clear here with this word dikaio. It does not mean to make righteous. In fact, it actually would, it would break down in some of these cases, right? Um, in the one about acquitting the impious person. Uh, if, if the command is, you shall not cause the impious person to become righteous, why is that a bad thing? Wouldn't that be a good thing? <laughs> For a judge to somehow, if he could, I don't know, it doesn't seem ontologically possible, but if it were possible for a judge to go into somebody's heart and make their heart good, right? right? Why would that be a bad thing? To make them righteous. It's not a bad thing. What's bad is to declare them to be righteous when they're not, right. to acquit them when they're not uh, worthy of acquittal. Uh, there's some other things too, and now we're going to get back into imputation. Genesis 15, 6. That's the verse that Paul quotes twice in Romans 4, verse 3, and Galatians 3, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So this is one of Paul's primary proof texts alongside Habakkuk 2, 4, for the idea that justification is by faith alone. Um, and here... The verb dikaiao is not used. Instead, it's a different verb. It's the verb logizomai, and that verb means to reckon, to count, to impute. So Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Righteousness was credited to his account. Righteousness was imputed to him. Not because he was righteous. He didn't do anything, right? The law hadn't even been given yet. That was 430 years later. Mm -hmm. He was a sinful man. I mean, you see all in the stories there, all the things that he did wrong when he lied about his wife and almost got her killed and all these kinds of things. So he is being declared righteous. He's being counted as righteous in God's sight simply because he believed in the promise of God. And reckoned would be another synonym? And reckoned is another way you can translate that word. Okay. Yeah. So um, the language of imputation in theology is really based upon this verse. It's really based upon Genesis 15, 6. It's interesting, too, that in, in Romans 4, Paul quotes that verse, and he spends the whole chapter in Romans 4 kind of doing a little commentary on that verse. And he, a few verses later, he changes the wording of the verse slightly, and he, um, he uses a slightly different phrase that obviously in his mind means the same thing. So, the quote itself is, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But in Romans 4.11, a few verses later, listen to how uh, Paul rewords that. He says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Meaning, while he was still in the state of being basically an un unrighteous person. Nobody, he hadn't kept the law. He hadn't been circumcised. He wasn't doing anything righteous, right? So he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith uh -huh. while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And that's the key phrase. Mm. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So here, it's slightly different, right? Because in the original quote, it says, 
it, meaning faith, was counted to Abraham as righteousness. But here, Paul slightly changes it to not faith being counted, but righteousness being counted. Mm. So that righteousness would be counted. Righteousness would be imputed. Righteousness would be reckoned to their account as well. So that tells you how Paul is exegeting that phrase. He's interpreting it not to be that faith itself is the righteousness. Rather, he's interpreting it to mean that righteousness is credited to Abraham by faith. Yeah, that's that's how he's interpreting it. So, And that righteousness is an alien righteousness. Yeah. It's outside of us. Right. Exactly. It's the righteousness of Christ, ultimately. Okay, so now since you've defined what imputation is, how does it tie into Christ's act of obedience? Um, and why is this important as it relates to the covenant of works as well? Great question. So I think the best way to get at that is to look at Paul's comparison of Adam and Christ in Romans 5. So in Romans 5, Paul is talking about the imputation of Adam's sin and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And he's making this parallel between the two because both Adam and Christ are covenant heads. And they stand as representatives for their constituency. So Adam is the federal head of the human race and all who descend from him by ordinary generation. Christ is the federal head of all of the elect for all who are represented by him because of their union with him. And so he makes this contrast and comparison. He First, he talks about the differences between them. He talks about how, you know, the first was just one act of sin that led to condemnation for all men, but the second was one act of righteousness that led to justification and life. Um, but then he talks about the parallels between the two, and he says that there's a great similarity, that just as, Romans 5.18, just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification that brings life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Can I just interject something or actually ask you a question just to clarify for the audience? Um, a lot of people might not know the terminology covenant of works. Can you briefly explain what that is? Okay. <clears throat> the covenant of works is the covenant that God made with Adam in the garden before the fall. The word covenant itself is not used in Genesis 1 and 2, but it is uh, used in Hosea. Um, and it. the idea is that God made a, a covenant with Adam before the fall, saying that uh, in the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. But conversely, if you obey the covenant, if you pass the test, then you'll eat of the tree of life and live forever. So you have the dual sanctions, the, the sanction of death for disobedience, the sanction of life for obedience. The sanction of life is clearly implied by the tree of life. And the fact that afterwards in Genesis 3.22, after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden. He said that they uh, have to be expelled lest they take of the tree of life and live forever. So it's clear that the tree of life symbolizes the idea of an eschatological advance beyond the, the, the kind of life that Adam had, had as he was created. As he was created, he had life, but it wasn't eternal life. Mm -hmm. 
But if he had passed the test, if he had um, resisted the temptation of the devil and uh, executed God's judgment upon the serpent, and then he would have been able to eat of the tree of life and live forever and have eternal life. So death and life are the, the two sanctions. And the covenant of works is referring to that covenant relationship that was uh, broken because of Adam's sin. And now the covenant of works still exists in some sense, but only in its broken phase. So all of humanity now is under that covenant, but not in the sense that we could somehow keep it and get eternal right. life, but in the sense that we're under the curse of it. We are yeah. all judged by Adam because of his sin. His, the guilt of his sin is imputed to our account, and we are reckoned as sinners in God's sight, even before we're born. So, so how does uh, Christ's active and passive obedience apply to the covenant of works? So the covenant of works then sets up the, this idea that there is a covenant head. Adam being the, the, the covenant head of, under that first covenant, he broke that covenant, but God made a promise to Adam and Eve right after the fall in Genesis 3.15 that there would be another seed to come who would be the true covenant head who would, who would obey where Adam failed. The proto-gospel, the proto-evangelium. Yeah, the proto-evangelium in Genesis 3.15. Mm -hmm. And so uh, right away from the very beginning, we're expecting another seed to come, the seed of the woman, who is going to crush the serpent's head like Adam was supposed to do, but failed to do. And he is going to win us win us the right to not just return to the garden and be back under a probation, but rather to go back to the garden and eat of the tree of life and live forever. So Christ is the second Adam. Um, he's the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And he obeys where Adam disobeys. So the active and passive obedience of Christ then is the obedience of Christ as the second Adam who obeys and provides that righteousness that Adam failed to achieve. In a sense, you could say that Christ fulfills the covenant of works for us. Uh, technically, he fulfills not the covenant of works in the garden because that covenant is broken. What he does is he fulfills the works principle under the terms of a covenant that he was under, which is called the Pactum Salutis, or the covenant of redemption. That covenant is the covenant between the Father and the Son, just like the covenant between the Creator and Adam, this is a covenant between the Father and the Son as the second Adam. It too is a covenant of works. And rather than failing it the way Adam did in breaking his covenant, Christ kept it so that he did fulfill the works requirement of the covenant of works. And therefore his obedience and righteousness is reckoned to the account of all whom he represents, just as Adam's guilt and sin is reckoned to the whole human race. Can you give us maybe a, a scriptural verse for Christ's act of obedience in the New, in the New Testament? Yeah, that was the one I read before, Romans 5, 18 and 19, where it talks about... Isn't there no, there's one another act. one, I think, in Philippians as well, correct? Um, yeah, Philippians talks about his obedience as well, yeah, his obedience unto the point of death. Right. Yeah, that's right. Philippians 2, verse 6, I believe. Yeah. So, no, these are important things to flesh out. Um, now, you know, people think that you know, this is really not all that important, and justification um, is really no big deal, you know, that we all believe the same thing. But when we look at Roman Catholic, 
theology or doctrine, they have a very different view of justification as you've already stated. And a lot of people say, well, we've come closer um, together. We saw this back in the early 1990s with the ECT document, the Evangelicals and Catholics together. Mm -hmm. And then you had the response by people like uh, like Sproul, Kennedy, and MacArthur. Um, But as we know, they haven't recanted of their position. And we can see this in the Council of Trent. And they still hold the Trent's. Trent is still binding to this day. Yeah. Uh, so I was going to read Canon 9 for the audience. Canon 9 says, If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace of justification, and it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. So look at the language there, anathema. Mm-hmm. It means to be a curse. And he used, they're using the same language that Paul, the apostle, uses in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's pretty strong language that if we deny what they believe, then we should be a curse to hell. That's right. So it's key because this is central to the gospel. This is how... We have a right standing with God. It's Christianity. It's this is what differentiates true religion from all the false religions in the world. The right. gospel. Right. Exactly. So we talked about what justification is, and of course, what justification is not specifically the doctrine of Rome's uh, view of infusion versus imputation. Um what about, uh, let's discuss the exegesis of the Romans passages a little more. Mm-hmm. Maybe um, go to Romans chapter 3 and then start off because that comes before the, the popular passage of Romans 4 where we talk about justification in the sense you were talking about before, Lee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Romans 3 and 4 is really... Um, the, the classical passage, the classic text. Um, <clears throat> in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, Paul begins to come to his conclusion that he's driving at up until this. So in Romans 1, 2, and 3, he's been making this case that both Jews and Gentiles are equally under sin. And so in Romans 3, 9, he kind of begins to attack that. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already... A, already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And so there you have it. There's that word righteous, which is is, is very important because it's dikaios in Greek, and it's then going to set up for the idea that we have a righteousness that comes from God um, in chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. So none is righteous, both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, The Jews aren't righteous, even though they have the law, and you would think that if they kept the law, they would be able to be righteous by keeping it, but they haven't done that. They haven't kept the law. The Gentiles, of course, are not righteous, partly because they don't have the Mosaic law, but also just even though they do have the moral law written on their heart and their conscience, uh, they, they have violated that as well. 
So there's none righteous. Righteousness cannot be achieved either with the law or without the law. And so that means no one is righteous in God's sight by their own efforts and by their own works. So that leads us then to the revelation of the gospel, that God has made a righteousness available for us that is in Christ, and it's apart from the law. Um, that is the key phrase, Romans 3.21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Uh, Paul will sometimes say apart from the works of the law, and sometimes he'll shorten it to just apart from the law, but it's the same thing. Okay, So this righteousness that we have from God is a gift. It's not something that is attained by our own law-keeping, whether it's as a Jew trying to keep the, the Ten Commandments, the law of God, that was given at Mount Sinai, or whether it's as a Gentile trying to keep the uh, the moral instincts and moral, I mean, even though the Ten Commandments per se are not revealed to the Gentiles, they do have enough knowledge of God's moral requirements that they know that it's not right to steal, it's not right to commit adultery, and that there's only one true God that they should worship. Either way, either either option leads to no righteousness for mankind. And so this righteousness, the righteousness of God, is given as a gift apart from law, whether revealed law or the law written on the heart. So, uh, Lee, just a quick question. So it does say, uh, I have the NASB here, it says the righteousness of God has been manifested, uh, being witnessed by the law and prophets in verse 21. Mm -hmm. So in this case, at least how I'm seeing it, does that mean that the righteousness of God in this case is... Just that's bad news for us because we haven't attained it because the law has revealed to us our sin, or does because uh, this is part of your dissertation. Obviously, yeah. you talked about what is. Can you expound on that? Yeah. So it is tempting at first to think of this righteousness of God as something like God's justice, right? In fact, a lot of uh, I believe that um, Martin Luther said that 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 was the interpretation of this verse that he was taught. In the Roman Catholic Church before he came to understand the gospel. Interesting. That it just refers to God's justice. And he has this passage where he talks about how he used to beat upon Paul in this passage because it bothered him. He said, look, if it's not bad enough that God has revealed his wrath through the law, now he's revealing his wrath through the gospel. The gospel is now revealing to me the same thing, which is that God is just and holy and I'm a sinner and so I'm condemned. And but then he kept studying this passage and he realized that the righteousness of God is not the righteousness of God as an attribute of God, but it's the righteousness that God gives to us as a gift. It's the righteousness of Christ that is received by faith. And how do we know that? Well, because in verse 22, he spells it out. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the added phrase there, through faith, tells you that this righteousness is a gift. The righteousness of God given as a gift and received through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction between Jew or Gentile. Right. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. So there you have it. Verse 24 now changes it from the noun to the verb. So the noun in verse 21 and 22, the righteousness of God. That's the dikaiosune of God. But now he changes it to the verb dikaiao and are justified 
dikaiothentes, by his grace as a gift. Actually, it's dikaiumenoi. It's not the aorist passive. It's the present participle. Dikaiumenoi, being justified uh, by his grace as a gift. And it's also helpful in your own mind to put a little parenthesis there. So in the middle of verse 22, put a parenthesis where it says, for there is no distinction. So the first part of the parenthesis goes before the word for. And then the closed parenthesis continues uh, into verse 23, um, fall short of the glory of God, close parenthesis. Hmm. So if you take the parenthesis out, then it reads like this, verse 22 to verse 24, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe and are justified by his grace as a gift. Oh, there you have as a gift. That's explicitly uh, telling you then that the righteousness of God is a gift. And it's the same thing. It's another way of saying that we are justified. We are dikaiosified, if you will. The righteousness of God is this righteousness that we receive so that we are now declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the righteousness of God um, um, that causes us... A that we are being justified, then does that become now the righteousness from God? That's right. Or is that a completely different term? No, that's the same thing. Philippians 3 verse 9 spells that out. So in Greek, uh, in, in Romans 3, 21 and 22, it just uses the genitive phrase of God. Uh, of God just means something general. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you exactly what the relationship is between those two nouns. It's righteousness of God. That could be possessive genitive. It's God's own righteousness if it was the attribute. Uh, but it could also be a genitive of source, the righteousness that comes from God. Philippians 3.9 takes that phrase and adds the preposition from. It doesn't just use the genitive theu. It adds the preposition ek. So Philippians 3.9 fleshes out the meaning of that genitive. Genitives in Greek can mean so many different things. And it all depends on the context. Mm -hmm. So you don't know if it's a possessive genitive or an objective genitive or a subjective genitive or whatever. But Philippians 3.9 tells you what kind of genitive it is <laughs> because he adds the preposition from. So it's the righteousness that comes from God. God is the author of this righteousness and he gives it to us as a gift. That's amazing. And there's another, I think another possibility here that I didn't really get into this in my dissertation because it seems a little bit too... Um, uh, like I'm reading in too much theology into it. Um, you know, when you're doing PhD work, you have to be very academic and scientific and you can't like burst out too much into pastoral doxology and <laughs> theological ideas, right? But if I had the opportunity, I would have. I think that the righteousness of God is not only a genitive of source or author, but it also is it's connected directly to Christ himself, right? And so it's the righteousness of God because it's the righteousness of Christ who is God. Mm. It's the righteousness of Christ, which is most clearly revealed in his obedience to the point of death on the cross. So it's the righteousness of God revealed in Christ, but specifically in his death, in his cross. The righteousness of God is the righteousness of Christ. And the righteousness of Christ is seen, of course, it's throughout his whole life, his whole life of obedience. 
but it's climactically expressed in the climax of, obe of his obedience, which is his going willingly, voluntarily to the cross for us in obedience to the Father. That's the ultimate expression of his active obedience. That's Amen. an important thing to keep in mind is that sometimes in theology, we make the mistake of saying the active obedience of Christ is only his life up until the cross and the passive obedience is the cross. Mm -mm. That's not correct mm. because the cross itself is the pinnacle of his active obedience as mm -hmm. well. It's also passive, but it's also the pinnacle of his active obedience because he laid down his life willingly in obedience to the Father. Yeah. We were talking about this in our last episode with uh, Pastor Killian, and I made the comment that you know sometimes we like to make this major distinction between the two, and you can't do that. Mm -mm. You can't tear them apart. No. It's a seamless rope. It's Philippians 2.6 again, his obedience to the point of death. It's one obedience. So, so now, now we can, the Bible can say that God who justifies the wicked can actually justify the wicked because... That's right. Of Christ's act of obedience. That's right. So that now occurs in the imputation of that act of obedience upon his elect. Exactly. Yeah. And now within the imputation, the way I understand it, it's 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 a two-way street. So we the God imputes Christ's righteousness to us in our sins to him. Is that accurate? That's accurate, yeah. Okay. Second Corinthians five twenty one. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Also known as the great exchange. That's right. Yeah. So imputation then is critical in understanding justification, how God actually applies that credit toward us. That's right. Okay. That's great. This is amazing. Yeah, praise God. This is the conclusion of part one on the topic of justification. Justification.